the Bible. It's the most read book in the world, but many of us get stuck in a rut when we read it. Rather than feeling inspired and energized, we feel confused, disenchanted, or removed. Hey, if you can relate to that, we've got a conversation for you. 14 fresh ways to enjoy the Bible. Plus, our devotional introduces us to the ideal mother, all ahead. Welcome to The Land and the Book with Middle East expert and author Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger on this Mother's Day weekend saying Happy Mother's Day. And maybe you're wondering what's the next event on God's prophetic timeline. Why is it so important? And what does it mean for you personally? Well, if you have that question, our friends at Life and Messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses that issue. The Rapture, Paul's Hope and Comfort, is an engaging ebook that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, and it will surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook. You'll also be able to learn there more about Life in Messiah's 135-year history of sharing God's heart for the Jewish people. So last week, we offered a chance for you to win our book blast featuring seven great titles. And Charlie, our winner is Melanie Mice from Albuquerque, New Mexico. And she writes, I've been listening about a year now. I never had the blessing of traveling to the Holy Land, but listening to the podcast is the closest I've been. And she's intrigued with John the Baptist, wondering if it'd be possible to visit the jail where he was kept someday. Well, she says, thank you and shalom. And we thank her. Thank you, Melanie, and thanks to everybody who wrote to us. We enjoyed reading every single email, and there were plenty of those. And uh, let's swing our focus now to what's happening in Israel throughout the region, Charlie. Story number one, this uh, past Monday night, Israel launched a series of strikes in the Gaza Strip, killing three top Islamic Jihad commanders, along with a number of civilians. What prompted those strikes, and what impact will it have on the region? Well, the strikes were in retaliation for the rocket barrage launched against Israel a week earlier by Islamic Jihad. Israel conducted the operation to take out Islamic Jihad's top military infrastructure. In addition to taking out key leadership, Israel also attacked Islamic Jihad military sites and rocket production facilities. Now, there has been some level of retaliation, which Israel expected, but the main operation was successful and will likely set back Islamic Jihad for some time. Unfortunately, some innocent civilians living near the military targets were also killed. Israel doesn't deliberately target civilians like Islamic Jihad does, but in this case, civilians were hit. Let's hope, John, that the cycle of retaliation ends quickly before more civilians on both sides are impacted. This past Monday night and Tuesday was also the Jewish religious holiday of Lag Baomer. Two years ago, the event resulted in a stampede that left 45 worshippers dead forcing last year's event to be scaled back. So how did this year's celebration go? And while you're at it, help us understand exactly what this event actually celebrates. Okay. Well, first, a little history on Lagba Omer. Uh, The word literally means 33rd in the Omer. Uh, An Omer was a measure of grain. And counting the Omer, counting the number of days, refers to the counting of time between the first sheaf of barley that's offered at Passover and the first sheaf of wheat that's offered at Shavuot or Pentecost. That uh, period in between is that uh, period where they count these days between the two omers. Lagba Omer celebrates the 33rd day of counting. Uh, Some believe it marks a day when a plague ended that 
killed thousands of disciples of an early rabbi. It also marks the date, some believe, on which a second century rabbi who was the founder of Kabbalism died. And his burial place is on Mount Moron, which is where the largest celebration of the holiday takes place. In 2021, an estimated 100,000 were celebrating Lagba Omer when 45 men and boys were killed as the crowd stampeded down a ramp and a staircase. Last year's event was supposed to be limited to just 16,000, though about 20,000, they believe, actually attended. This year, the crowd was much larger, up to 200,000 by some estimates. Thankfully, the event was relatively incident-free. Ultra-Orthodox Jews love to celebrate Lagba Omer. Other Israelis are just happy the event passed without another tragedy. Well, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu seems to be working furiously to try to resolve multiple conflicts threatening to topple his coalition. What's behind all the tension, all the drama, Charlie? Uh, The main tension is the conflict between the different elements within his ruling coalition. Israel might have a conservative government, but that doesn't mean they're united. Several groups within the coalition seem unwilling to compromise. Here are just some of the recent issues Netanyahu's had to face, and This doesn't include the debate on reforming the judiciary, which is the real elephant in the room. The ultra-Orthodox want kosher electricity. They're pushing to install giant electricity storage facilities, in in essence, giant battery stations, to hold electricity so the ultra-Orthodox can feel like they're having electricity without having to make someone work at the power station on the Sabbath. Now, it'll cost $33 million to provide one facility in a heavily ultra-Orthodox area. It makes no sense logically, but the Prime Minister went along with it to keep those factions from bolting. Another more Zionist-oriented faction pushed to have this year's Jerusalem Day flag march through the Old City include the Muslim Quarter. Some even wanted it to include the Temple Mount. The Muslim Quarter was approved, but the Temple Mount was not. To keep other right-wing parties from bolting, Netanyahu is looking at advancing a bill to implement the death penalty for Palestinian terrorists. Sadly, in trying to find something to please everyone, he seems actually to be finding ways to offend all the sides. They take what he offers them, but then criticize him for not giving them more. It's really unclear how long Netanyahu can continue walking this tightrope between so many unsatisfied friends, allies, and coalition partners before one of the disgruntled parties finally walks out and the whole coalition collapses. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Dr. Charlie Dyer is working us through a list of stories based throughout the Middle East region. Israeli researchers have developed an artificial intelligence program to translate ancient cuneiform texts. How accurate is the program and how helpful could this uh, program be to scholars? Well, researchers at Tel Aviv University and Ariel University developed this artificial intelligence program to automatically translate Akkadian cuneiform into English. In terms of accuracy, they're able to obtain relatively high-quality translations. And as scholars apply the program to more texts, the quality will continue to improve. While some scholars might not appreciate the idea of a computer doing the translation, most will find this helpful. Uh, The number of scholars able to translate Akkadian cuneiform is relatively small, but the number of tablets that have been discovered over the past two centuries, well, it's actually quite large. Hmm. There are tens of thousands of tablets that have not yet been translated. Most are relatively mundane records of things like grain sales and land purchases, but hidden among them could be tablets with historically important information. Now, by being able to rapidly translate thousands of tablets, 
scholars will be able to zero in on those tablets that have greater historical significance. Artificial intelligence will never replace the expertise of human scholars. Some tablets are fragmentary. Others require knowledge of cognate languages to help provide insight into unique words or phrases. But this could revolutionize Akkadian scholarship. And as new tablets are uncovered, it will allow those texts to be made available in a more timely fashion, all of which are good things. Well, Charlie, as you and I get ready to head to Israel, airport security there just stops several American tourists trying to smuggle fruit roll-ups into the country. And it wasn't just, you know, two or three. Does this mean we need to uh, leave our snacks at home on this trip? (laughs) Well, only if you're planning on taking hundreds of pounds of snacks. (laughs) Uh, These tourists showed up in Israel with several suitcases filled with more than 375 pounds of fruit roll-ups. When custom officials asked them, you know, why do you have all these snacks? They said the snacks were for family members in Israel, and they said it had something to do with ice cream. Well, evidently, a viral TikTok trend involves wrapping a fruit roll-up around a scoop of ice cream, causing the roll-up to become hard and crunchy. And as a result, Israel is experiencing a fruit roll-up shortage. Uh, individually wrapped fruit roll-ups were selling for 5 to $6 each, rather than the normal price of $3 for a box of 10 uh, I guess, John, the moral of the story is, if you're going to Israel, don't try to recover the cost of your trip by smuggling in bootleg fruit roll-ups. Otherwise, taking along some snacks is just fine. Well, Charlie, we've referenced our upcoming trip, and you and I have some specific objectives in addition to leading that tour while we're there. Talk about that. Yeah, we're going to be some busy beavers there, John. In addition to everything else we do on the tour and trying to put uh, more photos and videos on the Facebook page, uh, we're also going to be recording some uh, material that we'll be using on future Land in the Book programs. So uh, I, I know you have the schedule, and uh, you're going to keep me uh, on task. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to that. I hope to do that. We're looking at about six or seven different conversations at key sites throughout Israel. And our goal really is, just like uh, the rest of the program that you hear week in and week out, is to make you feel like you're there. Well, we're going to be there. And I think that adds an additional dynamic as we host these interviews there. Right, Charlie? Oh, it does, John. You know, I love going to Israel with you. We've been a number of times, not enough at all. So anytime we have a chance to be there and then talk about it while we're there is just fun. Well, let's get back to today's program. Uh, We've got questions and answers that are coming along after our conversation with Jim Coakley about 14 fresh ways to enjoy the Bible. But then your devotional takes us where? Well, we're actually, it's Mother's Day, so we're heading to Mary, the ideal mother. And I want to look at the Gospel of Luke focus on her. All right, a very appropriate uh, devotional for this weekend. But first, 14 fresh ways to enjoy the Bible. Jim Coakley is a voice you know and love, been part of the program for a long time, and we're really going to have a great conversation. 14 fresh ways to enjoy the Bible. That's next. The Bible is the most read book in all the world, but many of us get stuck in a rut when it comes to approaching it. Rather than feeling inspired and energized, well, we sometimes feel confused, disenchanted, or removed. Now, if you can relate to any of those feelings, our next conversation is for you. Hey, welcome back to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and before we get to our conversation with Dr. Jim Coakley, let's talk briefly about richly loving our Jewish friends. Check this out. 
If Jesus is the Messiah, why isn't there peace on earth? I've heard that tossed out to me as an objection to someone else coming to faith in Christ, a Jewish friend. What is the answer? Let's ask Levi Hazen, Executive Director of Life in Messiah. Well, John, this is really a good theological question. Uh, There are many prophecies about the Messiah ushering in an era of peace on earth. For example, Isaiah chapter 2 describes a time when people will beat their swords into plowshares and nations will not war any longer. A time when the greater son of David, that is the Messiah, will reign over a restored Israel. But when consulting the whole counsel of Scripture, we must acknowledge global peace is just one picture or attribute of the Messiah. We can agree with those descriptions of a future era of peace. Those will indeed happen. But the Scriptures also paint another picture of the Messiah. For example, Isaiah 53 teaches that the future Messiah would experience suffering and be rejected when he arrived. The Christian view is that these are reconciled in two comings of the same Messiah. His first coming was a suffering servant as the Lamb of God, and his second coming, which we await, will be the conquering king who defends Israel, establishes his throne, and ushers in a kingdom of peace. How else can these two very different portraits of the Messiah be reconciled? And that's Levi Hazen, Executive Director of Life in Messiah. Bible scholar and lover of God's Word, Dr. Jim Coakley, wants to share 14 invaluable strategies that will bring our Scripture study to life. Dr. Coakley has taught Bible at Moody Bible Institute for more than 20 years in both the seminary and the undergraduate school. He is married to Gail, has two adult children and three grandchildren. He's a frequent tour leader to Bible Lands and a frequent guest on several Moody Radio programs, including The Land and the Book. Appreciated your time here for a great stint. Uh, Jim has contributed to the Moody Bible Commentary and the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. It's an honor to welcome you back home, Jim, to The Land and the Book. Oh, it's great to be with you, Dan and John. Yeah, and that's right. Charlie Dan Anderson, that's right, Charlie. Yeah. It's, it's a family. Hey, let me start by, uh, by being anything but subtle. Your book is titled 14 Fresh Ways to Enjoy the Bible. Is it your assessment, then, that a fair amount of us don't enjoy the Bible? And if so, how did you reach that conclusion? Well, I think like all of us, we love the Bible, but sometimes we find it pretty boring or we just kind of go through the motions and kind of read through the words, but we really don't really register much with it when we read. And I'm guilty of that myself. And so over the years, I've just found that there's little reading strategies Mm -hmm. that if I just be having those on my radar as I open the pages of God's Word and look for it, man, the Bible is really fresh. The Bible really pops out. And I'm just following techniques that all good authors use. Mm -hmm. And so just by acknowledging their presence, by looking for them, it really has engaged my Bible reading to a high, high level. I like that. So you're saying this... uh... This is an outgrowth of your own exploration, your own journey with the Bible. Yes, it is. Because, you know, for a long time, I just focused on the Bible as history. I knew it to be historical, and I truly believe the events are depicted there. But what I didn't really recognize very well is that it's great literature. Mm. And just acknowledging some of the techniques that all good communicators use are present in the Bible is not just the niceties of seeing these things, Mm -hmm. but it really helps to understand what the heartbeat of what the biblical authors are really trying to focus on. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger, joined today by Dr. Jim Coakley, author of the new Moody Publishers book, 14 Ways to Enjoy the Bible. 
Our culture, it seems to me, has a strong preference for quick, pragmatic self-help solutions rather than pondering mystery, pondering theology for that matter. How much do you think that frame of reference factors into the way we enjoy or don't enjoy reading Scripture? Yeah, it's a great question, because oftentimes I think we just kind of approach it, just, just kind of get information. Uh, but to realize that, you know, the Bible speaks to us on an emotional level as mm-hmm. well. And just to recognize that the Bible can connect with us in terms of some of the ways in which are subtle, but very, very important. And I liken it to, just as I see structure, beauty, design in the mm-hmm. created world, I see the same beauty, structure, design in the word. The same God who created the world, and I go to Grand Canyon and you go different places and you see this structure of beauty, why am I not surprised that the same God who designed the world with beauty also injects the word with beauty? And it's just amazing. Well, let's dig into some of these uh, strategies from the book. Since we're broadcasters, we have to go with this one. Jim, step up to the mic. That's a chapter you've got. Yeah. Talk about this technique. This was really powerful once I began to really observe this. And it's just a simple strategy. Look for quotation marks. Nobody ever told me to do that when I was in Bible interpretation, Bible study methods. Look for quotation marks. The reason being is biblical authors are in control of the narrative. They're in control of the text. And they make the decision, just like you make the decision. Uh, You know, you're controlling this interview. Now you can turn it over to me to respond. And it's the same way that biblical authors can do. They can turn over the microphone, step up to the mic, to a character within a story. Because otherwise they can control and just kind of summarize what happens without ever hearing the voice, the actual words of a character in the story. So just paying attention to that and asking the question, why did the narrator give up the microphone? Mm -hmm. And oftentimes it helps with what we call characterization. You get to hear the character's really heart. And because remember what Proverbs says, you know, out of the heart comes the words. Yes. And so the idea here is that you're able to capture a person's personality characteristics by listening to their words. And the authors make that choice for us. But here's the beauty. Oftentimes the big idea or the theme of a section of scripture is found on the voice of a character rather than the narrator himself. So that really helps Mm. not just to pay attention to that, but also to get really to the nub of what that passage is all about. So you get to the end of the gospel of Mark and you have then the centurion at the cross. And he says, step up to the mic quotation, Mm -hmm. surely this was the son of God. And he captures the whole theme of the whole book of Mark right there with his own words. So uh, let me get this right. You're saying by default, we tend to say, well, the narrator's the one with the goods. Right. When in reality, we're divorcing it from real life. I mean, if you watch a movie, anything, it's the dialogue so yes. often that has the bomb, that has the, the nugget. Yep. And and that's a classic illustration right there, that, that right. Uh, Roman centurion. Right, because Mark could have just said, hey, the centurion thought that he was the son of God. And, but we hear his own words yeah, from his surely, own lips. Yeah. Surely this was the son of God. And then all of a sudden, if we are reading Gospel of Mark correctly, we come to that same conclusion that the centurion did. Beautiful. And it's beautiful. Yeah. He's back. Dr. Jim Coakley, longtime friend of the land and the book, is our guest today in the studio. He's written 14 fresh ways to enjoy the Bible from Moody Publishers. All right, when we're in the grocery store, Jim, a whole lot of us are studying those labels. You say we need to read the labels, though, when it comes to Scripture. Yeah, this is really a fun one. Oftentimes, we just kind of read through the story, and we don't pay attention to the different labels 
that a character has. And they could be familial labels, father, uncle, husband, you know, son, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or they can be ethnic labels or they could be even occupation. You know, so you have Simon the Tanner uh, or you have the ethnic ones, Laban the Aramean. And those are then chosen by the author to kind of give a portrayal of that person so that you, the reader, should be looking at them through those lenses. Mm -hmm. So for instance, like Laban, when you first come encounter with him, this is Jacob's uh, Mm father-in-law, that he is all familial terms, uncle, brother-in-law, it's all good. But then as soon as there's tension, what happens is he's now Laban the Aramean. He's not uncle Laban anymore. And so using that race card, that ethnic card to show that there's conflict, because oftentimes ethnic conflict is really tension of a lot of stories. And so we see that change, subtle change of that label or Ruth. Uh, we know that she's a daughter-in-law of Naomi, but then sometimes the biblical author says Ruth the Moabitess. It's like, we already know her ethnicity, but every time that label is used of Ruth, yes. you're feeling that tension of a foreigner, of somebody who's from outsider now in Judah, and that raises the tension and that really draws us in as readers. As a hearer of sermons, I love it when the preacher shares an object lesson. And you say object lessons are throughout scripture. Yeah, it's amazing that you think of props in a movie. You think of like Indiana Jones with his whip and yes. his hat, or you think of the lightsaber with Star Wars and the Jedi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and believe it or not, the biblical authors also inject objects into the story that are actual objects, but they are infusing the text with some meaning. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting to me, I was really rejoicing when I began to see every one of the patriarchs in Genesis has their own prop, has their own object lesson. Abraham has trees. Everywhere you see Abraham, yeah. he's encountering trees. And they all begin with the letter M, Mamre, More, Moriah. And it's like, okay, there's something going on here. Why is Abraham always encountering trees? And then you realize, okay, he's the father of faith. He has roots. Mm-hmm. And so a tree is a perfect analogy for the father of faith, and we're all his offspring. And so a tree is a great fitting object lesson to go along with Abraham. What about Isaac? He's only on the stage for one chapter by himself. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. he's in the shadow of his father or his son. But there's one chapter, chapter 26. And what do we see him doing? Digging wells. So the object that's associated with Isaac is wells. But that, again, is a perfect prop for him because he is a child of promise. He's associated with the land and prosperity and success. Mm. So every time he digs, even in the Negev, he gets water. Mm. And so wells are a perfect prop for that. What about Jacob? the stones, the rocks that he encounters (laughs) over and over again are a perfect object for Jacob because he does things the hard way. In fact, he comes to the end of his life and he says, the years of my life have been long and hard. And again, Mm. that stone that he counters everywhere is there. And Joseph, clothes. Just like we have different clothes, wardrobes, changes in our closets, Joseph changes clothes many times and that signals a transition. So it's a subtle thing. It's not the main point but it enhances the story. It's a garnish, as it were, on a steak meal. Uh, You see that little piece of parsley that just really sets off that story. Dr. Jim Coakley is author of the Moody Publishers book, 14 Fresh Ways to Enjoy the Bible. One of those is clock management. What do we need to know? 
Yeah, just like at the end of a sports game and the coach has to manage the clock to try to win the game. Well, biblical authors have control of the pace of a story. Sometimes they are very fast-paced, but sometimes they slow the narrative down to a crawl. And so just paying attention to how the biblical author is pacing the story. So Abraham, for instance, he's 175 years of age, but there's really only 25 of those years that we really focus on. So we're not getting a full biography of the entire life of Abraham. The first 75 and the last 75 years are basically very minimally said. Mm -hmm. But then even at the 25, there's a 12-year gap after Ishmael is born before the child of promise Isaac is born. So there's really only 12 years that we focus on with Abraham. That's kind of a, a jarring thing for readers to realize. I'm not getting the full life of Abraham. I'm getting select, slowed down accounts in the life of this man to teach me about faith. All right, last one we've got time for real briefly. Uh, one of the 14 ways to enjoy your Bible is looking at location, location, location. Yeah, certainly we know that geography is a part of the story. I like to think of it as another character, just like a person mm -hmm. is in the story. The geography plays a role. And so paying attention to where events take place, uh, the mood that's created with certain things, why are mountains places of revelation? And so you read through the Gospel of Matthew, you have the Sermon on the Mount. Well, you've been, we've all been to the Sermon on the Mount. Many of our listeners have. It's not really a high mountain, but it's projecting this is a place of revelation. So mm -hmm. Jesus is giving a new law. And so mountains are places of revelation. Or we have even places subtly like Shechem, where we have a sad incident that occurs. And then when Joseph goes there in chapter 39, it's like, uh-oh, nothing good can happen in Shechem. Right. And you are cued to that because the backstory that's there. And that's what I love about what Charlie does with Land in the Book, is he takes listeners to a place and tries to infuse that with, how does our understanding of geography help us understand the Bible? And that's exactly what location, location, location does. That's Dr. Jim Coakley, who's written the Moody Publishers book, 14 Fresh Ways to Enjoy the Bible, a link to that book and more about Jim at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Well, Charlie's back next to answer some questions, but then he'll do what Jim just mentioned in his devotion. He'll take us to a place in the Holy Land, a passage in Scripture, and he'll weld the two together. So stick around for more here on The Land and the Book. appreciate you hanging on with us here at the land of the book where segment three brings us questions and answers i'm john gager with our host dr charlie dyer speaking of questions what's the next event on god's prophetic timeline you ever wonder about that and why is it important what does it mean for you specifically well our friends at life and messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses this issue the rapture Paul's Hope and Comfort is an engaging ebook that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, and it will surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook. You'll also be able to learn more about Life in Messiah's 135 year history of sharing God's heart for the Jewish people. Well, we've got a big log jam of questions that we want to set free, so we'll get to as many of them as we can in today's broadcast, starting with Fred's, who takes us to 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17, which says, The Lord is that Spirit, which seems to imply that they're referring to the same person. I know the Lord is a different person from the Holy Spirit, and, and thereby this confusion arises. Can you help clarify? 
Yeah, I think we need to look at the immediate context for the answer. In verses 13 to 15, Paul's referring back to Exodus chapter 34, where Moses would go before the Lord with unveiled face, but then put the veil back on when he went out to speak to the people. Paul then says in verse 16 that when someone turns to the Lord today, that veil, which is hiding God's glory, is taken away. And I then believe Paul's reference to the Lord in verse 17 is the same Lord as he mentioned in verse 16. It's not confusing God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Rather, he's saying that the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, is the presence of God that was with Moses. Paul also calls him the Spirit of the living God back in verse 3. Now, I see this as a strong affirmation of the deity of God the Holy Spirit which Paul connects with the very presence of Yahweh seen by Moses in the tabernacle. All right, let's take on Cheryl's question. She says, can you please explain the origin of the words Jew and Jewish? When are they first used in scripture? Yeah, the terms Jew and Jewish come from the Hebrew word Judah. Following Solomon's death, the kingdom of Israel split in two, and the northern kingdom kept the name Israel, while the southern kingdom became Judah. Someone from the kingdom of Judah could then be referred to as a Jew, And in the Bible, the term Jew began to be used at the time of the Babylonian captivity when the southern kingdom of Judah went into exile. So in the book of Esther, we read about a Jew at the citadel of Susa named Mordecai. He's called a Jew because his family went into exile from the kingdom of Judah, even though the verse goes on and tells us he was actually from the tribe of Benjamin. In the New Testament, the words used to refer to the Jewish people who returned to the land following the Babylonian captivity. So, for example, in John 4, the woman at the well in Samaria says to Jesus, you are a Jew asking me for a drink, though I'm a Samaritan. So she's using the word there ethnically to describe anyone who was a physical descendant from the tribe of Israel uh, who had come back to the land. Two other points. First, the term Jewish is simply an adjective. It means related to, associated with, or, or depicting Jews. Uh, And second, the term Jew can also be found in non-biblical sources. In fact, as early as the time of King Hezekiah in Judah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked Judah in 701 BC, and he left behind a record of his attack, which says in part, as to Hezekiah the Jew, he did not submit to my yoke. So the people of the kingdom of Judah were known by those outside as Jews. Mary says, those people who are spiritually dead have no interest in the gospel, and they often have hostility and anger toward Christians. Is there a scripture that explains that God's glory is preeminent rather than man's salvation? It's a deeply significant theological question. In fact, books have been written on this issue. Hmm. And now for the sake of time, I'm going to take us to just one passage that I think helps put it all in perspective. In Ephesians 1, Paul focuses on the blessings of redemption, but he does two things that I find significant. First, He shows the reality of the triune God. And then second, he focuses on the fact that God's glory is preeminent. So in verses one to six, he says, uh, it's the work of God the Father in the plan of salvation and ends by saying God did it all to the praise of the glory of his grace. Now, having mentioned that God the Father favored us in the beloved, that's what he says in that part, that's Jesus. Paul then focuses on the work of God the Son in the plan of salvation in verses seven to 12. We have redemption through his blood, he says. And all this happened so that it would be to the praise of his glory, he says in verse 12. And then Paul focuses on the work of God, the Holy Spirit, in the plan of salvation in verses 13 and 14. Having believed, we were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the first installment of our inheritance. And of course, it's to the praise of his glory, he says in verse 14. So to summarize it all, all the members of the Godhead are fully involved in the plan of salvation, but what's preeminent in the role of each is that it's to the praise of his glory, mm-hmm. repeated three times. It's not that God's program of salvation is insignificant, 
But the real significance as Paul goes through this is that it's all for the praise of God's glory. I love digging into these questions. Uh, Some fascinating thoughts today on the land and the book. Our next question from Gordon. He says, an agnostic friend says that if there's a God, he's not the one of the Bible. And as proof, he cites the, am I saying this right, Gilgamesh flood legend? Charlie, help us understand what that is and what the argument seems to be. Yeah, and I think there's actually a simple answer for this man. By the way, John, you pronounced that correctly. Uh, But there's a simple way to answer the friend's objection. uh, And it's the fact that the Gilgamesh epic contains an account of a worldwide flood. Well, that doesn't argue against the account in the Bible, since there's no evidence that the biblical account borrowed from the Babylonian account. Rather, I think what it really shows is uh, the reality that there was a worldwide flood. Uh, The Bible preserves the correct version of the account, which was given by God directly to Moses, while the Babylonian version became distorted as it was passed down over time. You know, if you've ever played that telephone game where someone whispers a phrase and then (laughs) you whisper it to the person next, you can see how something becomes misunderstood and distorted. Uh, And the way I know which one's true and which one's distorted, well, look at the details. Uh, For example, just one small example. In the biblical account, uh, the boat that's to be built is rectangular in shape. It's, It's built something like a barge. It's 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Those are good dimensions for a boat that's going to float in a stormy sea. But in the Gilgamesh epic, the boat's square. Hmm. In fact, it says that it's to be built 180 feet long and wide and high. Well, that's a, that's a cube. Uh, a rectangular-shaped boat, like the Bible gives, is longer and wider than it is high, so it, it's likely to remain upright. But a floating box that's the same width and height and length, which is what the Gilgamesh epic has, well, that's going to roll over in rough seas, killing or injuring everyone inside. Uh, the biblical account makes more sense and fits the facts of science better as we know them. This listener wants to know, can there be two or more valid interpretations of a Bible passage? That is, dual fulfillment, a valid hermeneutic principle when exegesis is done. What do you think? I personally believe that in general, there's just one valid interpretation for any given passage. Our job as interpreters is to determine what that meaning is that was intended by the original author. If a passage can have multiple meanings, well then, really, there isn't any way to validate what the original meaning really is. You know, God gave language to communicate truth, and uh, since he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, I think that what he intended to communicate through his word should be consistent. Now, there are a small number of times where God will actually give multiple meanings. Uh, In Hosea 1, God tells Hosea to name his child Jezreel, which means the Lord scatters or the Lord sows. But then God also says, that's going to be a sign of judgment. He says, I'm going to punish the house of Jehu for the massacre in Jezreel. Well, now the child's name, Jezreel, is referring to the city. And then he says, I want to break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Well, now it refers to the valley. Uh, so in that case, God says Jezreel means the child's name. I'm going to scatter the people. It's because of what happened in the city of Jezreel. I'm going to break their bow in the valley of Jezreel. But someday great will be the time when God sows them back in the land. Also the name Jezreel. Uh, so in the absence of God saying this word actually means several things, I think it's always best to look for the one meaning intended by God. Let's go to the prophet Ezekiel. Does chapter 28 of Ezekiel refer to both a literal man, the king of Tyre, and Lucifer, the devil? Well, and to answer this one, I need to go into just a a little bit more detail. Ezekiel very clearly indicates the beginning of each new section in his message against Tyre and Sidon with the phrase, the word of the Lord came to me. In chapter 26, he has a prophecy of Tyre's fall. Uh, In chapter 27, he gives a poetic lament, a song that's going to be sung over Tyre's fall. In chapter 28, the first 10 verses, He has a prophecy against the human ruler of Tyre. And in chapter 28, verses 11 to 19, he gives a description of the ultimate king of Tyre's fall. And then he ends by giving a prophecy on Sidon's fall, 
uh, which is Tyre's sister city. Now, by using those specific phrases to introduce each section, Ezekiel makes it clear that the human ruler, the one in verses 1 to 10 of 28, and the ultimate ruler, the one in verses 11 to 19, are distinct individuals. The human ruler is an actual person. In fact, Ezekiel says, though he might claim to be a god, God will ultimately show he's nothing more than a man and not a god. He also makes it clear that the ultimate power behind the throne, that's verses 11 to 19, was someone who was more than just a mere human. In fact, he says there, he was in Eden. He was appointed as a guardian cherub. He was on the mountain of God. He was blameless from the moment of creation, and he was expelled from God's presence. Now, I think the reason Ezekiel does this is to show that the human king who thought he was a god wasn't even really the person in charge at Tyre. Rather, the ultimate king was someone that we know as Satan. The only thing the two shared in common was a sense of pride that made him think they were equal to God and the reality that God was going to judge them both for their pride. I love it. We've been to the Old Testament, the New Testament. We talked about proper Bible study techniques and more, all in this one little segment. And you can be a part of it with your question if you'll email it to thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Charlie Dyer's devotional is next. I hope you stick around right here on The Land and the Book. regular church attender, you've noticed that come Mother's Day, many pastors faithfully trot out Proverbs 31 to honor moms. It's a great passage for sure. But today, something a little bit different here on The Land and the Book. Charlie, what's your take? Well, we're heading to Luke chapters 1 and 2 today, and uh, we're going to be looking at Mary as the ideal mother. Interesting. And we'll get to that after we listen to this, a testimony from someone who's traveled to the Holy Land. I love their firsthand accounts that they share with us so very kindly. Listen. Hi, my name is Diane Doyle. And um, before I came on this trip, I was very psyched up, of course. And one of my prayers was, Lord, show me the significance of Jerusalem. I'm now more familiar with the layout of the land and the scriptures are more meaningful to me, such as the scripture. When I was stood in Jerusalem and I heard this read, as the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people both now and forevermore. And that's from Psalm 125. And there I was with mountains all around me and realizing that three times a year, the people of Israel would come to Jerusalem to worship. This just brought in a whole new meaning to me. So Charlie, Luke 1 and 2 are biblical foundation for today's devotional. Where are we geographically? Well, our destination today is a house in ancient Rome rented by Paul's companion, Dr. Luke. Luke accompanied Paul to Rome and spent two years there while Paul waited for his accusers to arrive. During this time, Luke penned his gospel and the book of Acts. Now, we're here on this Mother's Day weekend to speak with him about Jesus' mother, Mary. Apparently, at some point in his travels with Paul, Luke had an opportunity to spend time with Mary, either when Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea or when he and Paul were in Ephesus, where tradition says Mary was taken by the Apostle John. Now, the exact place isn't known, but it's clear from Luke's gospel that Mary provided him with specific eyewitness details surrounding the birth of Jesus that weren't mentioned by any of the other gospel writers. So, Dr. Luke, thank you for this opportunity to ask about Mary on this Mother's Day weekend. 
Now you paint a wonderful literary portrait of Jesus's earthly mother in your gospel. What do you think it was that made her so special? Uh, Well, in many ways, she represents what the Bible describes as the ideal wife and mother. I could go into much detail here, but for the sake of time, I'll simply mention four truths I discovered during the time I spent with her. First, she was a woman who was submissive to God. You realize she was a very young woman in her teens or very early 20s when she was startled by the appearance of the angel Gabriel. Imagine how you would feel if an angel suddenly appeared before you. She was afraid, and we would have been as well. And then Gabriel told her she had found favor with God and would give birth to a son who would be known as the Son of the Most High and who would reign on the throne of David. Mary asked one simple question, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel told her God himself would work through the power of the Holy Spirit to have her become pregnant. But think about it. A young, unmarried girl getting pregnant in that culture, that was scandalous. And that's when Mary's true character displayed itself. I am the Lord's servant, she said. May it be to me as you have said. And did you notice that I used the word doulos here? That's not a gentrified word for a household servant. No, she said she was God's bond slave. She submitted without hesitation to God's plan for her life. Well, in addition to being submissive to God, what's the the second truth you discovered about Mary during your time with her? Ah, I discovered that Mary was also steeped in Scripture. When she shared with me the song she sang during her visit with a relative Elizabeth, I knew God wanted it included in my gospel. It shows her familiarity with the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Even at this young age, she had studied and memorized God's word. She also understood God's plan for the people of Israel. Her song ends with her affirmation that everything about to happen was part of God's fulfillment of his promises to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Think about that. This young woman had a depth of knowledge about God's word that puts many others to shame. And remember, she's just a poor girl from Nazareth. She didn't possess her own personal copy of the word of God. Yet she had committed what she had heard to memory. And speaking of that, I hope you're keeping my points in mind. She is the model mother because she was submissive to God and was steeped in Scripture. But then she also demonstrated spiritual sensitivity. Did you notice in my gospel that twice I said she treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart? She first used that phrase when she described the arrival of the shepherds the night Jesus was born. And she used it again after describing the events that took place in the temple when Jesus was 12. As she saw God's hand at work in her life and in the life of her son, she preserved those truths in her heart. She committed them to memory, including the specific ways God had arranged all the events toward his ultimate goal. She wasn't so distracted by all the other events of life that she let these tiny details slip from her grasp. No, she treasured them, locked them away in her mind to retrieve and ponder again and again. The way she looked as she shared those details with me, it was like they had just taken place yesterday. She was sensitive to all God had done and was still doing in her life. Well, Dr. Luke, those observations are remarkable. 
Mary was submissive to God. She was steeped in scripture and showed a great spiritual sensitivity. So what's the final trait you observed during your time with Mary? Well, the last trait I saw that makes Mary an ideal model of a godly mother was her sympathetic concern. When she shared her encounter with the prophet Simeon in the temple, 40 days after Jesus was born, I actually saw her wince when she recalled his final words to her, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. I asked her what she thought he meant, and she reminded me of the events of the crucifixion as she watched her firstborn son hanging on the cross in agony. She loved her son so much that it was as if she was experiencing her own mortal wound as she watched him die. Now, don't get confused here. She wasn't saying she was somehow sharing in his death on the cross for our sin. Remember, Simeon was describing the impact Jesus' death would have on all humanity. But he then told Mary that she would also experience the impact of her son's death on her very life. She had such sympathetic concern for her son that she felt as if she was being stabbed herself as she watched him suffer on the cross. And the point here is that Mary demonstrated incredible compassion for her son and for others. You do know the meaning of the word compassion, don't you? It literally means to suffer together. Mary was a mother who demonstrated great compassion, and all those traits together are what helped make her such a great model for mothers, both in my day and in yours as well. But uh, time is slipping away, and I need to go visit Paul, so uh, if you'll please uh, excuse me. And with that, we bid farewell to Dr. Luke for our journey home. But what truths can we pack in our knapsack to carry along? Well, on this Mother's Day weekend, let's carry home the characteristics that made Mary such a special mother. She showed what it was like to be submissive to God. She was steeped in God's Word, which suggests she spent time trying to memorize what God had said. She was spiritually sensitive to God's work in her life, pausing to think back over what God had done, to lock those experiences away in her heart and mind so she could ponder again and again. And she was a woman of sympathetic concern who demonstrated compassion and care for others. She modeled godly traits that all of us, mothers, fathers, daughters, and sons, should seek to demonstrate in our own lives. Hmm. Thank you, Charlie. It's refreshing to see this look at Mary as such a great mother and for so many wonderfully biblical reasons. Appreciate your research here. Hey, our website is thelandandthebook.org, thelandandthebook.org. You can read about today's guests, past guests and programs, and more at thelandandthebook.org. Also there, Charlie, something that more and more people are relying on. We, we get it every time in these emails, the podcast. Talk about that. The podcast allows people to listen anytime, anyplace. Uh, they can go back and re-listen to the program or pick it up if they weren't able to hear it on the radio for the first time. And you'll find that podcast right there at the website, thelandandthebook.org. It's something you can share with a friend the podcast at thelandandthebook.org. Well, our time is up, but we sure appreciate your company here, and I hope you'll tell a friend about us and be back yourself next time as we present The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.